What's happening, my fellow Earth travelers? This is a bonus rebroadcast episode of my recent appearance on the Quite Frankly podcast with former Lifestylist Show guest and my friend Frank Ellaridi. The main themes here are healing trauma, addiction recovery, and the intentional use of psychedelics and plant medicines. I'm going to warn you here, this is a pretty spicy and uh, vulnerable dialogue. Frank really has a knack for getting down to the nitty-gritty of someone's experience, so you can expect the raw and real talk on this one. A few of the topics covered are as follows. Why I took psychedelics after 22 years of sobriety? The paradox of being in addiction recovery and using mind-altering substances. An inconvenient truth. AA's co-founder Bill Wilson's white light experience with the plant medicine Belladonna and his later experiences with LSD therapy. The importance of ego dissolution in the recovery process, plant medicine integration and taking action post-ceremony, why psychedelics should be used with extreme caution, especially by those in recovery, the potential for creating a modern recovery model integrating psychedelics with 12-step work the universal principles codified in 12-step programs, making amends without expectations of results, identifying and facing painful feelings of loss, regret, and remorse, recontextualizing our mistakes by seeing the value of learning by trial and error. We also discussed the work of Byron Katie in Choosing Not to Suffer and the teachings of David Hawkins in his book, Letting Go, transforming the practice of prayer and meditation into a continuous state of presence the lessons I've learned from tinnitus, and the power of saying, I don't know. And this Tuesday, we'll be back with number 478 of The Lifestylist. It's called Beyond Hydration, Structured Water to Heal People, Animals, Plants, and Soil with Mario Branovic. Until then, may you be blessed. And if you know someone struggling with addiction or curious about psychedelics, turn them on to this episode if you feel called to do so. not about getting somewhere or becoming something it's actually about removing falsehood and and removing those parts of myself which are inauthentic and not true to who I am and within all of us authentically deeply is an unconditionally loving divine soul mm-hmm. that comes into the human experience and gets banged up and as a result has the potential to cause a lot of harm to ourselves first and foremost and then to other people with whom we we interact especially people with whom we interact with a with a high degree of intimacy you know the people that we really get close to are the people that we hurt the most my dear listeners today it is my great pleasure to have this emotional conversation with a man who has spent decades in search of the ultimate lifestyle. As the host of the Lifestylist podcast, which by the way has 11 million downloads, Luke's story brings his listeners thought-provoking interviews with some of the most prominent experts in the field of health, spirituality, and personal development. I've actually been on his show and he's one of the most genuine people out there. But Luke's story 
Actually, his journey to this point has been anything but ordinary. Raised in a dysfunctional family and battling addiction from a young age, Luke found a way to heal himself and help others do the same. He immersed himself in the study of alternative health and personal development, experimenting with countless modalities and technologies to optimize his physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. And if you're someone who feels things so deeply like I do, or if you crave intimate conversation, then you're going to want to listen to this one all the way. One quick note before we begin, please subscribe on YouTube and whatever podcast app you're listening on because the higher the subscriber count and the number of reviews and likes and engagement that we get, the better guests I can book for you. Um, you wrote a letter to someone recently I, I heard in your New Year's podcast. It was a months long process, right? And what was that? You don't have to talk about who it was or what it was, but what, what was that journey like of writing a letter, you know, of closure to someone from the past? Wow, that's a really great opener. And that is, I would say recently, my most powerful integration process, mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't a letter of closure, it was just a letter of just what my heart needed to speak Mm. into a, into a relationship i mean it probably doesn't matter who it was for just a close member of my family let's just say i feel like i could say it now that it's been re received and responded to and whatnot but in my life there have been a lot of situations in which i've set an intention to grow spiritually and make a difference in the world and be a positive force of nature and love and and uh at times have not wanted to face some of the things that are, I won't say in my subconscious, because if they were subconscious, I wouldn't be aware of them, but right. unresolved issues. You know, it's like a situation wherein um, the people listening might have had, wherein you had unresolved issues or just things on your heart you wanted to say with someone uh, that you really love, and then they're not there anymore, right? Mm. And then people go and leave letters on a grave, right? Um, and I'm, I'm sure in the great scheme of things, uh, the person who's left their body is still receiving that message. But I didn't want to live with the regret of um, having someone in my life that I really care about get older and not express what was on my heart. And why it took so long was that I wanted to be really thorough and honest, but I also wanted to temper my message with some degree of prudence, you know, sometimes honesty might even come from a place of love, but if it lacks that prudence, you can cause harm in the process, right? It's like, oh, I want to share all of my inner thoughts and feelings with this person because I'll feel better if I do so. Yeah. But what about the other party? There was a lot of um, crafting and recrafting of the message I want to convey, which was, you know, a message of um, somewhat of just regret, you know, that I wish that that relationship throughout my life had been more consistent and um, that there was a sense of, of grief around that, you know, that in many ways that it had been sort of tragic. There had been a lot of lost time and uh, a lot of misunderstandings too, you know, and so that was part of it. And part of it was really making amends for mistakes that I had made. 
know? so there was accountability too. Yeah, and 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 in earnest, you know, because it's easy to. Well, it's not so easy, but in hindsight, often we realize we've made mistakes or we've been selfish or we've harmed someone, whether intentionally or not. And it's relatively easy to acknowledge that on the surface and say, wow, I'm really sorry I hurt you. But um, to thoughtfully explore the nuances of that hurt and to really own it and make a commitment to change moving forward is an entirely different thing, you know? Yeah, and what about like the response, not necessarily in that case, but in general for people who might be thinking, oh, I need to do that too. Does it matter if there's a response or is it just, do you think the art and the, the process of going through what you went through to craft and recraft and put it out there? For me, in, in any situation like that, any change that I'm trying to implement in my life, whether it involves someone else or not, it's more about the performance that I give. It's more about the actions that I take. And I do my best. I'm not always successful at it, but I do my best to um, divorce myself from expectations of the result. So it's not like I'm going to write this letter to Frank and pour my heart out and be open and be vulnerable so that I get a letter back saying, yay, good job. <laughs> or, like that justifies. Yeah, yeah. Or that you're going to write me a letter back saying, ah, me too. Here's all the ways, you know, in which I've probably hurt you or I regret this or that. So no, I had, I had actually, I think very little to no expectation of any sort of response. That said, I, I was curious to see how it landed, if it was well received. Um, my, my hope was that it wasn't going to as I said, cause any, any more harm, you know, mm -hmm. because sometimes you might be ready for a certain level of depth of truth and just realness, rawness, and the other party might not be in a place in their life where they're receptive to that. Um, but because I was so careful and it was something that was so thoughtfully crafted um, and, and that the intention behind it was to really provide healing for both parties and it was just pure love mm, no mm. strings attached you know so it had an element of unconditional love right so yeah. it's not like oh i love you uh in this <laughs> in this letter um on the or i love you but on the condition that you respond yeah. with applause or an an equal message of mm. um you know, of um, accountability or anything like that. But, but the whole point of it, I think, is for me, and I think this is just really important for all of us who are on the spiritual path, it's really easy to spiritually bypass with very pure intentions. Yeah. Those of us that are interested in spirituality and know that there's something more available to us in our relationship with the divine, God, source, getting back to the truth of who we are, um, operating from our higher selves, however you want to frame it, <laughs> you know, how are our interpersonal relationships? Have we really cleaned up the past? Have we truly forgiven? Have we humbly asked for forgiveness for our trespasses? You know, I think these are the things that many of us don't want to face, especially if there's pain of trauma, abandonment, neglect that we don't want to feel, you know, and so the mm. process of that to me was about evolving through the feelings and really, really facing the sense of loss that I had and the sense of regret that I had and, and the remorse for ways in which I behaved when I was um, 
less conscious. You know? And does that just come up? Well, one you know, day and you're like, I'm going to write a letter. Or, no, I mean, yeah. I think for many years there have been feelings that I wasn't able to specifically identify, but just a sense of unfinished business or a sense that there's, that there's something missing or that with some effort that I could perhaps repair the relationship and without really being attached to the result, but at least to know that like I did everything I could. Yeah to put my best foot forward. Um, but I didn't know exactly how to address it. I just remained open to the possibility. But what happened with that was really interesting um, and speaks a lot to the critical nature of integration. I mean, we're always integrating our experiences and our lessons, but specifically around plant medicine ceremonies. Oh um, man, it's, I think it's like almost as important, if not more than the ceremony. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, that's true of, of all spiritual work. It's yeah. like, we can have insights or read a book or sit with a teacher or a shaman or wherever those messages it. are coming from. But it's, it's like, it's not in gaining understanding, it's in gaining understanding and then taking action based on what we've come to understand. And so in that particular situation, it was really interesting because I had no awareness that I was even going to explore this particular area of my life, you know, this relationship. And quite early on in one particular ceremony, I was just flooded with um, like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a clarity and, and things about myself and things about the person and things about the relationship and the past just started flooding my awareness. Um, and they were so meaningful and so profound and seemed to come from a, such a deep place of truth that I didn't want to risk not remembering it and not having something to work with after that experience. And so I grabbed a notebook and just started writing and writing and writing mm, and writing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, ended up writing some, I don't know, 15, 20 pages. Wow. And... I wrote until I could no longer read my handwriting because the medicine started to take hold. And oh, you did this on the medicine? Yeah. And, oh. and then at a certain point, you know, the pen and the paper are kind of melding together. You wrote 15 just, pages on medicine? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then I, you know, shared about that in the sharing circle the next morning and made a commitment to the group and to myself that I would indeed deliver that letter, right? Because the integration is... Well, I had these realizations, but what am I going to do with it? And that's what required a few months of me not wanting to face it. You know, it's like, oh, I probably can't read my writing. I put it in a drawer. I'll do it later. <laughs> I'll do it later. And there was a bit of procrastination because, of course, those feelings now need to be also honored and, and, um, and worked through, right? It's one thing to have some insights one night that are extremely powerful in nature and to feel all of that and cry and go through all the different phases of that. Um, awareness, but mm. to then in a waking state in the middle of a work day or whatever, to get that letter out and go, oh God, I got to feel this now without the help yeah. of a group, without the help of the, the guides, without the help of, um, you know, the medicine. No longer being in that medicine yeah, state. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, you know, in beta brainwaves, like doing things yeah. to stop and take the time. And so I had to use like a translation app and so I could barely read my writing. It took a lot of work to actually craft it. And then there were multiple revisions of saying things in a way that was 
that would make the most sense and was concise and also at the same time compassionate. Mm. And uh, that took some time. It was a lot of crafting. And then I finally printed the letter and read it again and again. And I thought, okay, this is, this is as wise and loving as I can do. What was the feeling when you actually sent it, put it in the mail, like sent it off, no, long, no going back? Both relief and uh, anticipation, right? Even though I had no expectations, or at least did my best to surrender my expectations, I think the anticipation was just around it being understood, right? That was mm -hmm. maybe my only expectation, not so much in a reply or an equal letter of, I think at that point it was 20 pages or something. It was a long letter, barely fit in an envelope, you know? Wow. But it was just like, oh man, I hope this lands the way that I want it to land because I'm really trying to do good and to provide healing um, to, to myself, to the yeah. other party, and to the relationship. So the apprehension was around that. And I didn't hear anything for quite a long time uh, and just had to surrender that and just trust that the time that was needed to be taken on the other end is, is what was needed. And then eventually got a very brief card back mm. with three sentences that said as much as my wow. many pages, you know. And that, that was a bonus to just know like, okay, cool. Mm. It landed, you know, it landed. Yeah. And th these are the important things that I think many of us miss, you know, myself included. It's like, I want to go out and save the world and raise consciousness and all these lofty ideas or, you know, many people take to protesting in the streets and you know, <laughs> fighting the system and, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. and it's like, man, what about, have you made up with your mom, your dad, your mm. brother, your sister, your ex? Like, have you made things right? Have you cleared your karma? Have you done the inner work? Have you faced the things that you don't want to face? And anyone listening, well, not anyone, but I imagine many people listen, like, think of that one thing right now that you haven't disclosed to another person. Those secrets you have, the shame that you have, the unfinished business that you have, the unresolved conflict the unspoken amends for ways in which you've harmed other people you know the that's the hardest work to do Ooh, yeah but it's the most important work if if our goal is to be free for sure a few examples just popped into my own head and i'm like ooh, yeah i mean like it's just when you think you've done all the work there was a few and i was like oh yeah that would be one that i would have to do yeah it's, it is yeah, hard we, we all have them man because we're even in our best intentions we're clumsy we're human and and we evolve right i mean i think about things in my past and i try to do so with compassion for myself but ways in which i have behaved at different times in my life are just <laughs> hmm. so mortifying you know i'm just such a different person now and so i i also have um a, a compassion and and amends do for my younger self that was acting out of unhealed trauma and unconsciousness Definitely. and just blind to patterns that I was acting out with, without having any clue that I was doing so. Mm -hmm. you know? And so mm -hmm. a big part of becoming someone different is to really own and acknowledge who I've been. And, and there's something beautiful in that too because that fortifies my commitment to continue to be better. Right. If I just kind of like brush it under the rug, oh, I said, I'm sorry, let's move on. Right. Okay. But have I really, really looked um, from an objective point of view 
at how my behavior harmed other people when I was less conscious, you know? And mm -hmm. when I really look at that and face it and feel the shame and the grief around that, um, and also the compassion for, for myself, then the odds of me behaving in those ways again in the future are much lower because of the self-awareness that brings, right? I've identified a pattern. I've identified that behavior or even just the identified the underlying pain that motivated that behavior, right? It's like, mm. why would I treat someone um, without respect or regard? Or why would I be totally self-centered and narcissistic if I've really, really felt the pain of what that modus operandi <laughs> produces, you know, and in facing and healing that pain, it's like, man, it, it helps me to walk a line of much more purity, mm -hmm. much more truth than who I really am. Because the, the, the man that I was, the boy that I was, was so far removed from the truth of, of who I really am, right? And so yeah. to, to change, I've got to really see all of those false versions of myself and unravel all of their inner workings so that I can kind of be left with, with what I really am. So it's not, it's not about getting somewhere or becoming something. It's actually about removing falsehood and, and removing those parts of myself which are inauthentic and not true to who I am. And within all of us, authentically, deeply, is an unconditionally loving divine soul that comes into the human experience and gets banged up and as a result has the potential to cause a lot of harm to ourselves first and foremost and then to other people with whom we, we interact, especially people with whom we interact with a, with a high degree of intimacy. You know, the people that we really get close to are the people that we hurt the most. Like I've, many people in my life that, that knew me in a peripheral surface way probably think I'm a really nice guy and I've always been that way. But how did I treat the people in my inner circle, you know, yeah. that's, that's where it counts. And those, that's where the, the gold is in healing and in true transformation for me is, you know, let's get to the, to the core of it. Who am I when no one's looking? How do I treat my wife? How do I treat my dog? How do I treat my, my family? You know, how do I treat even people that I'm not in relationship with anymore? You know, mm. old friends, exes, etc. Like how, with what regard do I hold them? Even if we don't interact, where is my heart with that person? You know, because beyond this physical realm, there's a part of us that's all knowing that, that supersedes space and time, right? There's a place wherein all is known. And so you can't get away with anything to yourself or to anyone else. In that place is where the true healing and the true growth, that's, that's where the self-realization exists. It's in the, in the gnarliest nooks and crannies, you know, that's, mm. that's, that's where the magic is. But it's really easy to get caught up in the distracting world of fool's gold in the 5D consciousness and the new age realms. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's all so tempting, right? It's like the path of ascension. Yeah, I want to get higher and higher and higher. Well, in order to get there, I've got to dig my way through the mud down here on Earth. You know? Well, that's the real way, right? Yeah, some well, people, you like know, I mean... Like the spiritual bypassing that you were talking about earlier, where maybe it's like, it's love and light, love and light. But there's also uh, a lot of hard work, or else everybody would be on the spiritual path. Yeah. It's not a sexy path. It's scary. And yeah. It's, but it's beautiful. I like, think about that sometimes. You yeah. know, it's like, 
being asleep can be really painful. Mm. You know, when, you, when you're not conscious to who and what you are and you're not conscious to the inner connectedness of your fellows, it's painful and life can be wrought with stress and mistakes and pain and turmoil. But there's a certain bliss in that ignorance, you know, sure. um, wherein if one is really committed to truth and finding their way back to God, oh, there's so many pitfalls along the way. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. the, the degree of surrender that's required to get back there, it requires the deepest level of, of sacrifice. You and know? it's almost even magnified bigger and bigger and bigger if you are on the spiritual path. Like yeah. it'll show up, show up until you are forced yeah. to look at it and address it. Yeah. Luckily, but, the more you do it, probably like you, <laughs> it only takes like a couple of days or even less. I mean, yeah. Well, to that's, be like, oh, I got the lesson. That's the good news, you know, <laughs> is that we're, we're all a work in progress. But in my experience, the more earnest my commitment, even though there's dark nights of the soul to be endured, generally speaking, my level of happiness continues to increase over time. So it's like this graph where you're, you're getting higher and higher. You start doing the yoga, meditating, going to spiritual groups, go to India, sit in ceremony. Wow, you have these peak experiences and then you come back to your everyday normal um, human corporal life and then you get your ass kicked with a divorce or an illness or the death of a loved, a loved one, a letter from the IRS, those are some of my favorites. Uh, and then you think you haven't made any progress, right? But then you apply the tools mm. that you, you've learned through those past experiences and you, you remember, ah, there's, there's something I can apply here. There's a truth that was missing and you can see where you went astray and become realigned and even though there's these massive dips and those dips along the path become much more jarring because of the level of um, consciousness that you have around them you're used to feeling really high and great and you have harmony in your relationships and you're in flow and you're manifesting things and it's all love and light as you said and so those moments of contrast really hit mm, hard mm -hmm. but if you look back or if I look back on like the whole um, spectrum of growth and realization, it's continually going up and the level of suffering on the way up gets less and less and less. And I also make fewer mistakes that cause me and other people pain. And, 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 and then also the mistakes, this is so fun because the mistakes cease being viewed as mistakes right along the way there's the ability to even in a moment of anguish know that there's real value in that experience and it's not like i'm being victimized by my karma or by the universe or god or other people it's that hmm okay i was in error somewhere on the path here i became unconscious and this is a reminder to me <laughs> of what I'm supposed to be doing here. And any time, you know, things just randomly happen that don't seem to be advantageous to me, 
I can actually see, even even while it's still painful, even in the dark night of the soul, man, this hurts like hell. This is mm. so uncomfortable. I want to jump out of my skin. Yet, there's an inner knowing that there's something in here of immense value. And I don't have to wait until I'm on the other side of the thing to look back and go, oh, I see what the lesson was. Yeah. I can live in the mystery of what the lesson is in the midst of the storm. Mm. And that makes life much more dynamic and even fun. Why do some people experience, um, I don't know, knowledge or salvation or freedom, and then they want to come back and be a guru or be a teacher? And others don't. But in your case, I feel like you've, you know, you've gone through such a life experience that now, and people probably really connect with you for that reason, you come back and you share and you teach. Like you're, you're like discovered fire and now you're sharing it, you know? Well, I think it's because of the level of empathy that suffering invites mm, mm -hmm. into our experience. It's like if you found yourself caught in a burning building and you happen to stumble across the blueprint of the building and you know where the stairwell is and you get out of the building and then you run across <laughs> the street where there's an identical building and there's some people in there burning and you have the blueprint. It's like you're compelled to offer the blueprint to those who want out. And some people don't want out, and then you have to honor that, that some people want to remain in the burning building because of the inertia of their character, mm. right? Well, finally, this shit show is over. We made it through one of the most insane periods of human history the past three years. Now, while it might be appropriate to celebrate, it's also a great time to get educated and make some sense of what we just went through. So here's an incredible initiative about which I am extremely excited. It's called The End of COVID. The End of COVID Comprehensive Video Library launches on June 20th, 2023. And it's designed for how we consume content today. Just like a podcast, it features nearly 100 hours of recorded interviews, presentations, and conversations with an extensive cast of doctors, authors, scientists, and independent researchers. Prominent voices, many of whom, by the way, have been featured guests on this podcast, including David Icke, Kelly Brogan, Amanda Vollmer, Tom Cowan, Andrew Kaufman, Christiane Northrup, and more, have been brought together to educate the public, like you and me, on everything that's happened over the past three years, and even the decades before it. Over the course of over 80 sessions, the end of COVID goes all the way back to the origins of germ theory and touches on every so-called pandemic up to the present day. And perhaps most importantly, it calls into question the entire field of virology. The wide range of topics are organized into learning modules similar to an online class, making the end of COVID a completely unique online educational experience. To sign up for Convid's series finale, so to speak, head over to lukestory.com slash endofcovid. And they are leaving no stone unturned so we can make sure this never happens again. Because after all, in order for it to happen, we have to allow it. And I would hope that after what we've been through, we won't let that happen again. So to get yourself registered, go to lukestory.com slash endofcovid to keep in the loop. Yeah, and I, I guess it piggybacks a little bit off of that. It's a kind of off topic, but similar. Um, I'll tie it together, but the sobriety, because you've been very open about that as well. 
um, I had dinner with somebody recently, like it was like a few weeks ago, and um, he's sober. And I mentioned something about ayahuasca, and he and he said he was like, "Let me define sober for you." And he kind of said it a little snarky, and he was like, "Anything that alters your." consciousness or your perception and and i said okay you know the reason i ask is that i've met a lot of people at um you know plant medicine places who have uh, really strong addictions to things and they leave without them and they've had they have these transformative experiences i know you've worked with plant medicines and he was like well i can tell you horror stories from alcoholics anonymous a and he says you know people who have tried it and and they had the opposite effects and i'm like okay well so i'm totally open to either side but i was wondering what your um take on that is or what you would say to somebody who's it's such, sober it's such a fun topic that yeah. one and, and to just back up to your last question i think I don't think, I know in my own experience, the burning building was addiction. Yeah, right? I figured it was kind of like that. Yeah. yeah, and it's not its not by accident. I mean, within the spiritual context of the teachings of the 12 steps, that the 12th step is about being of service hmm. and, and helping other alcoholics. And you can do that. I mean, if you're two days sober, you have the ability to help an alcoholic who's one day sober, mm. right? And so there's this sort of golden chain of serviceability that applies so it's not like one has to have been sober for 30 years to have anything to share what is your number do you keep track uh yeah i keep track february 15th 1997 wow so 25 years wow and in the past four years i've done a ton of psychedelics too <laughs> we'll talk yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. how that works because that that <laughs> is a, a huge paradox and um and i can, you know obviously can't advise what other people are to do but what happened for me was, uh, because of the work that I do, having you know interviewed so many brilliant people on my podcast from all walks of life, on the spiritual path, and so on, I, like, like you, started to meet people who were bona fide addicts or alcoholics, for whatever reason, didn't go the route that I had successfully traversed, which was go to treatment, go to meetings, really commit yourself to that way of life, which I did for 20 years. Mm. Uh, but I started to meet people who were sex addicts, drug addicts, just, you know, yeah, misguided souls, you know, and had gone and had these peak experiences and never joined any kind of groups and were sober. And that was very interesting to me because in my, well, it would have been 22 years of being sober before I ever ventured into the realm of plant medicines. Mm. The only way that I knew of that worked and what worked for me and, and what um, the common wisdom since the introduction of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935 is that the path to sobriety and recovery, which are kind of two different things as it turns out in some cases, which we can go into uh, later, um, is complete abstinence. Like that's the way before I got sober I, lo I love smoking weed. I mean, I started smoking weed when I was literally a little kid, like pre-middle mm. school, elementary school. What? I was like, yeah. What? Well, and other drugs too, but weed was like my standby. Pre-elementary school? I'm sorry, middle school. My bad. Oh, yeah. okay. When okay. I was three, I was smoking weed. <laughs> um, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but pre -middle in, school, in, yeah. in elementary school. Still though, I mean, that's, that's pretty yeah. early. Yeah. It's, it's a gift to be able to have had that experience and get through it and mm. make it out alive in my 20s. But... Um, I always just wanted to smoke weed because that was a medicine that really worked for me and helped to ease the pain of living with my unresolved trauma and other issues. And like, I just, if I could tune out with music and cannabis, all was well. 
And so I tried for many years in my early 20s to just smoke weed and not drink alcoholically, to not use heroin, to not use crack, the other things that I had become addicted to. And I could never do it um, because I was never willing to fully surrender to, to full sobriety. I always was using that one um, chemical or medicine, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it would always lead me back to the other drugs. And so when you go to rehab, it's like they're not, hey, take a few Valium if you get edgy. It's nothing, right? And you're encouraged to uh, adopt a spiritual way of life and learn how to live by spiritual principles which is what I did in all of those years, 22 years of being around sober people, working with other alcoholics and addicts, helping them get sober, having people help me. Um, I can't tell you how common it was that, that someone was doing okay, they were sober, and then they got the idea, I could probably smoke a little weed, or I could have one glass of wine. Yeah. I wasn't even really a drinker. I was like into crystal meth. I, I could drink a beer. I mean, wow. I don't want to quantify it, but probably hundreds of, well, yeah, I would say I could claim hundreds of stories I've heard from people sharing in meetings and whatnot, but that had been, uh, you know, their demise. So I, I was never going to touch anything. I had every intention of staying sober for the rest of my life. And the way that it's said in recovery groups is often you don't take anything that affects you from the neck up. Meanwhile, oh, I think that's what he said. That's what he told me. Anything that alters your consciousness is the neck thing. up. That's what he said. Now, okay. you know, yeah. one could argue, well, what does caffeine and nicotine do? Right, right. You drive by any church basement in any city and you see an AA meeting, there's going to be a lot of caffeine and nicotine use. But, but you're also saying this with decades of having been sober ahead of trying it. And I think the person I was talking to might have been like six years in. So yeah. you're right. Maybe he was still at the point where he's like, I'm not doing anything. It could be a very slippery slope. Yeah. And if you would have talked to me at five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years and said, hey, ayahuasca helps a lot of people. It might be good for you to heal some of your underlying issues. And I became aware of that in the later years of my sobriety. And you know, I'd hear about these experiences and I was like, ah, oh, that sounds kind of cool, but it's off the table for me. I mean, it was not even remotely yeah. a consideration because the consequences of things going uh, awry are something I'm not willing to gamble with, yeah. you know, because if I, if I get entrapped in the bondage of addiction again, I mean, it's, it's literally a living hell. I mean, it's unimaginable suffering mm. uh, waiting for me. <laughs> and so, you know, that's great for you. And there's a little curiosity, but like, I, I missed that boat, right? It's like, I used up all my ride tickets. Like I can't play in that realm or work even in that realm. Anyway, long story short, as you hear in, in circles uh, like I hang in, the medicine started calling to me and I started hearing about ayahuasca and its ability to heal underlying trauma and provide um, incredible spiritual experiences and so on. And then I met a few people in the class that I described earlier that had been addicts, went and had a transcendent peak experience and became sober from that and never mm. did anything in the groups, in the in uh, recovery programs. Anyway, so I spoke with a woman um, that I met in New York City and she was telling me some of these stories <coughs> and invited me to go to her retreat center and um, sit with ayahuasca for a week, you know? At this point, had you had the pod your own podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm interviewing people about this kind of stuff all the time okay. and sort of sitting there going, damn, God, I wish I could do that. This sounds like it mm. could really benefit me, but I can't risk it. And then, I don't know, 
over the course of some time, I just thought, you know, I think I'm supposed to do this. And in, in one of my interviews um, with a channel named Paul Selig, this is when I was on the fence, like about to sign up. And um, Paul Selig talks to his guides and sort of trans, well, sort of, he translates their message verbatim, right? Uh, as a channel would. And I said, Paul, and this is on my podcast, if someone wants to listen to the Lifestylist episode, I forget the number, but featuring Paul Selig, because this is before I had, I had used psychedelics a lot earlier in life. Like I did tons of mushrooms and acid and, you know, trying to escape my reality. Oh, so you knew what the effects might be like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, had never, but I had never done so intentionally. I was going yeah, to Grateful yeah. Dead shows and just getting drunk and doing a bunch of other drugs. I mean, mm. it was a train wreck. But anyway, I said, Paul, do you feel it'd be appropriate to ask your guides if it would be safe and beneficial for me to go sit with ayahuasca? And he kind of paused and I guess determined that it would be appropriate to ask. And he asked his guides and then his guide spoke to me through him and said, uh, you, you know, something to the effect of um, that it would be safe for you to do so in terms of your sobriety and that um, you could very well derive benefit from it and that you'll also be fine if you don't. And I was like, green light, <laughs> bought yeah, the ticket. Yeah, you know? yeah. What mean, was in, it? Well, like not, yeah, in that moment. What country was it in? Costa Rica. Okay. Yeah, in that moment, um, <laughs> the decision was made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, so, you know, there's, God, there's so many hours of stories that go into that. But on the other side of that now, I see that there was a lot of reconciliation that I needed to work through internally because of the identification that I had built as a sober person. I am sober. I am yeah, yeah. a recovering alcoholic. I am a recovering addict. Um, there's construct that had been built and rightly so, because that's what I needed to make it 22 yeah. years. Right. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but knowing that I was about to kind of jump into the deep end of the pool, um, even in those first couple ceremonies, there was, um, I had to really work with my identity and how am I going to explain this to people? And am I sober anymore? Is that even a thing? Like mm -hmm. you asked me how long you've been sober in, in my understanding of myself, I've been sober 25 years because I'm not addicted to anything. Well, maybe nicotine, but I'm not, I'm not addicted to any of the drugs that I ever did before. I've never done any of the drugs that I did before. I don't drink alcohol. Yeah. So I'm just as sober as I ever was, despite having quite a lot of experience with a lot of different medicines in the past four years or so. But there was a moment in the very first ayahuasca ceremony that was just so awesome. And I'm sitting there kind of having these thoughts, having just drank a couple cups of ayahuasca, sitting on my mat, meditating, just got some hape shot up my nose and was just going, what the f am I doing? Luke, are you cool? Mm -hmm. Let's find out, you know, only time will tell. And I remember sitting there and, you know, you gotta understand, like, I'm sober for 22 yeah, years. I have yeah. not had my mind altered with the exception of one surgery I had where I was on some pain meds, but I didn't abuse them. But I, that was the only time I was ever like, oh, wow, I'm not me right now for a few days. Ooh, I mean, I'm trying to put myself even in your state of being in that moment. And yeah, I think like when I asked the question, I didn't realize even how big of a moment that would be that first time after 22 years of not risking anything. Yeah, nothing but, you know, coffee. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, you know, just with this diamond sharp 
level of presence and I'm waiting. I have my eyes closed. I'm sitting up on my mat. I'm breathing slowly. And I'm just waiting for the first sign that something is different, right? And I just actually felt very still and very expansive, just like one would feel in just a deep meditation, a lot of spaciousness and just empty, just waiting in the dark. And then like a freight train. Wow. It's just, and I'm sitting there going. Is everything flashing? It's just like the visuals, you know, start to kind of creep up and I'm like, oh, okay, something's happening. And then I am just fully immersed in the experience and it was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I, I mean, it wasn't scary. It was nothing but just the most profound tangible experience of God that I had could ever even dream possible. What makes you tear up now as you think about that? Because it was so liberating. Because I entered into a new depth of trust within myself. Mm. And in that moment, in the first few moments, I asked myself that question, am I still sober? Mm-hmm. What am I now? Who am I now? I just crossed a big line, you know? And, and really um, a major leap of faith that my intuition that guided me here was truly my intuition and not some self-rationalization or some games of the old addict trying to, you know. Yeah, find an excuse, think yeah, about it. Yeah, because denial is, yeah. oof, man, it's, it's powerful with addicts um, and myself included. But I asked myself that question, am I still sober? And this inner voice, I'll never forget this or God, or wherever the voice came from. It's just a thought that emerges that's not my own thought, right? And it said, Luke, you've never been more sober Hmm. in your entire life as you are right now. And it was like... I just got it. Because what I was sober from in that moment, in the depth of that experience, was my intellect, the ego, the persona of Luke's story, the persona of a sober guy, the, persober, the, the persona of an alcoholic. It was just my spirit and God without all of the interference of that noise. You know, the, the veil is so cleared that it's just like, I'm, this is actually me without the, without the, obscurity that comes with your normal waking state, you know? And, and, and I think, you know, why I tear up and why it was so profound is I just felt so free. Mm. I felt so free and I felt so much, so much love for myself. Mm. Before that, do you think you were like floating, like just trying to stay afloat, trying to, I'm I'm sober, I'm sober, I'm sober. Yeah. I mean, I was doing great. You know, I mean, I turned my life around. I was helping other people. I mean, I had truly been transformed in those 22 years, but this was another level of understanding and another level of depth and a, a, a much more meaningful relationship with myself and my heart and was so tangibly connected to God 
and yeah. and that there was this the liberation really came out of the trust in myself you know it was like oh this is this is why you're here you knew you needed to be here you listened to yourself and the part of yourself to whom you were listening is the real you in there mm-hmm. that really truly wants to heal that truly wants to surrender and this is what the surrender looks like it's it's a surrender to one's own innate wisdom right it's a merging with one's higher self to know that i don't need to call and check with someone every time i'm going to make a big life decision yeah sitting here or laying here on my mat like luke you're you're here now it's embodiment right and and so but even if you're not an adult, right? Like kids well, yeah, will I mean, say, kids are like, this is what I want. And if they don't get it, they throw a fit. Like they know what they want and they're adamant and they make sure everybody hears it. Yeah. So, you know, that was a huge reconciliation and mm-hmm. a huge departure uh, on my path and, and opened me up to so many other avenues of, of healing and, and understanding that have transpired since then. But one of the other really interesting things about the whole paradox of sobriety and psychedelics, medicine work, and so on, because I've, of course, now gone back and I'm like, what has happened to me? Like, I'm a different person now, and so much for the better. In the last few years, four yeah, years. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just the, the, yeah. the things that I've been able to heal, the letter that we started off talking about, like, there's no way I could have even been able to conceptualize that let alone actualize something like that something that deep and meaningful and and the really interesting part of this to me and why i love talking about this and again i'll remind anyone listening this is my own journey i have no desire to influence people's sobriety not sobriety take medicine don't i mean it's really truly a sovereign individual decision that one has to make and also that i think one should exercise the utmost level mm-hmm. of discernment in mm-hmm. so making mm-hmm. this is this is not a game you know i'm glad you said that because my next question was going to yeah. be what would you say to people watching who are on the fence yeah it's, it's kind of what you <laughs> i'm not going to say anything to them what i'm going to yeah. say is this is my experience <laughs> yeah yeah period you know and i don't know that this could mm. be would be should be anyone else's experience but what i do find very interesting about it is that because my whole paradigm of life and of my evolution after i got sober was based on the 12 steps Mm. i mean that's so a part of me there's no getting away from that i mean maybe if i went and had a drink i would lose that but the principles and they're not even the principles of the 12 steps are just fundamental spiritual laws. We talked about it with Course in Miracles, remember? How yeah. similar? It's, they're just inherent yeah. truths Very much so. that are universal, timeless, and always apply and always work. They just happen to be codified in a certain order, in a certain sequence, especially useful to addicts and alcoholics within the 12 steps. But they're universal truths. Mm-hmm. You can find them in mm-hmm. any spiritual book, any religion, right? But because that was my compass, my blueprint was like, these are the things. That is it one of the 12 to write a letter? To make amends, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, step nine. Mm. But that's really interesting in that step, and this speaks to the letter. We make amends to those we've harmed. That sounds great. Here's the caveat. Except when to do so would injure them or mm. others. That's where the 
the discernment comes in. But if you look at the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and whether someone knows what this is or not or has been part of groups or just it's some kind of nebulous thing out there and your cousin went to it, um, the foundation of it and how it started is really interesting as it pertains to mind-altering experiences mm. of, of the positive nature that I described. The co-founder's name was Bill Wilson. He was a stockbroker from New York. Knocked down, drag out, drunk. Couldn't get sober. You know, just life falling apart. So he checks himself into this hospital in New York called the Towns Hospital. And this is back in the early 30s. And what they did with alcoholics at that point in history in the U.S. medical system is they would uh, dry you out. So they'd give you all these different sedatives and things like that in order to get you through the DTs, the detox of alcohol. It's very addictive. Oh, like physically dry you yeah. out. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, wow. Alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs in terms of withdrawal. Uh. Much more dangerous than cocaine, crystal meth. Yeah, anyway. yeah. So he goes to this hospital. And they, which he had done numerous times before and could never get sober because he was not a spiritual person. Mm. Uh, so he goes to this hospital and they give him uh, something called belladonna, which is a, a plant medicine. He has really? this, yeah, he has this transcendent psychedelic experience. Oh. Two years, two days later, rather, and the history on this, I mean, I really had to dig in to get my facts right. As far as all recorded history on AA and its origins, this is as close as I can get to what happened. And you have to really kind of be an internet sleuth to put the pieces together. And so this is not like openly taught at AA? Oh, no, it is. It's in the... It's but in the Belladonna part too? Yeah. Oh, okay. But people that I'm aware of don't connect the dots. So at first I thought he had a transcendent experience while under the influence of this plant mm. medicine and some other sedatives. It was like a cocktail just to knock you on your ass so you could get through the DTs. Further research to me revealed that it was about two days later that he had the infamous Bill Wilson light white, uh, white light experience that he describes in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the main textbook uh, that Alcoholics Anonymous itself is founded upon. Okay. And in the book, he describes this white light and it was uh, as if the this wind came in from outside and he exp he describes like a enlightenment experience mm. essentially right mm -hmm. this deeply transcendent experience like one would experience on a psychedelic mm -hmm. plant medicine and from that moment on the guy never had to drink the rest of his life and so the whole and i'm skipping past a lot of history just in the interest of time but the whole 12-step model was created to facilitate a transcendent high consciousness experience for the alcoholic because the first guy that had it and got sober knew that's what it took. But not everyone could just randomly call in the forces of nature and blah, be blasted against the wall by a peak experience like mm. that. And so he created this group of teachings that after some time elicit that experience and allow one to have a relationship with God and out of that relationship with God and their own healing and maturity and understanding, they go out then and help other people in need that are suffering with alcoholism. So the whole basis of Alcoholics Anonymous is really in an experience had by one man on the heels of a plant medicine journey. Wow. And furthermore, later in his life, in the mid-60s, he went on to experiment with the medical administration, the therapeutic administration of LSD. And this is known on the record oh, with wow. Aldous Huxley. And wow. he had such profound ego dissolution 
experiences because he was still um, struggling with depression even into the 20 plus years of sobriety. He's the co-founder of AA, this organization that is now mushroomed out over the wow. entire planet and helped untold numbers of people become sober. There was still something missing and he knew that that initial experience he had held a key and so thus began his experimentations into LSD before it was illegal. Um, he did it at the Veterans Center in uh, Westwood, California for one of these particular experiences. He had such a positive experience that he met with the other sort of leaders within the organization of Alcoholics Anonymous and wanted to integrate LSD therapy Whoa. into AA. Of course, they all declined that and thought that it lacked wisdom and maybe it did. So, you know, if we're talking about abstinence as the only way based on, he was the co-founder. There was another guy named Dr. Bob who was a doctor. Was Dr. Bob also uh, sober or was it just that he knew how to put well, together he, a, a group? No, Dr. Bob uh, got sober the, the day he met or shortly after uh, the day he met Bill Wilson. That's the whole That's where the, the community thing? comes in. Yeah, okay. that's where the community comes in. It's, it's when someone has made it through the other side of, of, of a seemingly hopeless situation that if, if we confide in one another and I come to you and bear testament to the fact that I used to be exactly like you and I did the following things and I'm no longer like you, I'm sober, you're going to listen. I mean, not always. Wow, but, but you're, yeah, that's yeah. so interesting. And that was the whole, it goes back to the whole burning building thing. Yeah, what, exactly. Where the strive comes from oh, for you to go back. It's a I love these stories. The history yeah. of AA is so fascinating. It's so profound. The LSD thing to me is super fascinating. Yeah. And Belladonna, I need to look into. I've never yeah. heard of this. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, let's find a Belladonna, Belladonna shaman. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's something that's in use. It's kind of a folk medicine. But anyway, you know, I said all that to say, again, just because you're sober, I don't think you should go do psychedelics, okay? Okay, yeah. But it's a very interesting conversation because if we're really honest about the historical record of the origins of this incredibly powerful worldwide set of teachings, you know, it's an inconvenient truth that those teachings also included some of that, you know? So I don't know how we merge those, if they should be merged, but what I can say is that Hmm. it's widely known and not just in Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's called a religious conversion experience. I mean, in antiquity, that's kind of what it was known at the, the book, a varieties of religious experiences by William James, a really famous, very hard to read book. What's it I, called? Uh, the varieties of religious experience. Okay. He speaks of these transcendent religious oh. experiences wherein someone was a drunkard or a criminal or a, a lot of saints by the way a lot of saints yeah. were drunks and cheating and adulterous and then bam yeah so it it makes sense that if one is stuck if one is hooked in destructive patterns of feeling thinking behaving that a peak transcendent experience could unlock something within mm. them that could set them free onto a path of healing and fundamentally change who they are. So I, I guess the overview of this little diatribe here is that um, there, there are many ways to effect great change within one's persona and it seems in history, the biggest, most profound changes take place in conjunction with peak experiences wherein hmm. the intellect and the ego of the individual 
are at least temporarily subjugated, allowing God consciousness and the power of source to enter them and to fundamentally change them in ways that they could not do without having had that experience. Mm-hmm. So perhaps in the future of the realm of recovery, people will start to seek out many different ways to have these experiences, some of which might include plant medicines or psychedelics. However, and this is a, I know this is a long answer to your question, but it's, it's, good, it's, really, it's really important work, I think, um, for, for all of us to explore. Because this is a huge problem. Addiction is a huge problem. I forget that because it's not a problem for and me. And not just in your way that you had. Yeah, well, you yeah. Know, I mean, like there is addiction to sex, addiction to <laughs> yeah. pornography, addiction to a person, codependency. Absolutely. So many, so people, that's why I think it's important. I've never been addicted to a sub. I've never even done a drug in my life other than, you know, like you said, nicotine, marijuana, like right. coffee is a drug, right? I've had that. You know what they call people like you? Mm. Smart. <laughs> I don't know though, because like, you know, I heard you talking about uh, the Zen mist and I'll tell you, like, even though I'm not, addicted to other things that I will consider an addiction because um, I can't have it in my house. I'll Either. do it 20 times a day, Yeah, I'm 20 you. times a day. When I did your podcast <laughs> about a year ago, I remember it being across the room and me, I think about six times during the podcast, looked at it and I was like, I want it so bad yeah. right now. Yeah. And so then actually I was telling somebody yesterday, I ended up getting raw pay, which I have stopped for a while. Um, which for people who are listening who don't know is the uh, it's a shamanic snuff like a tobacco kind of mixed with herbs there's different kinds and I got two from a friend of mine and I bought it from her she it's like the largest size you can get right and it's supposed to last each one probably a few months I finished both in 10 days leading up to me coming here to Austin and I'm, I just again realized okay I can't have it I can't have it. I can, I'll do it if I'm in ceremony. I'll do it. I'm not, you know, it's like your your journey, I think, with nicotine that you talked about recently where um, you you were grace graceful with yourself. And you're like, you know what? Why <laughs> yeah. am I so obsessed with this addicted to the feeling of being yeah. sober, right? Or whatever it is, rather than just saying, you know what? I'm not hurting anybody. Nicotine has never hurt me. You know your own personal. We're not, again, suggesting anything to anyone else who's on their sobriety journey, but you knew for yourself, you know what? I'm way worse off not allowing myself to have this nicotine and driving myself insane than I am just using it here and there. Yeah, at that, at that time, that became clear to me, yeah. So there's one last piece I'd like to tie a bow on here. And this is a working model that I don't entirely have completed in my understanding or my ability to convey my understanding. But I do know subjectively that having had 22 years of very consistent work under my belt, not the least of which including a deep commitment to the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, that when I ventured into the realm of plant medicines and psychedelics intentionally, that that framework is what I use in those experiences and in the integration of those experiences. So the benefit that I've derived is largely due to the fact that I have a foundation where peak experiences are included 
but not considered to be the be-all, end-all, because without that foundation, I could have a peak experience and still not have had the opportunity to have a moral compass and a character of integrity. Meaning, if someone were to be struggling with addiction because of unhealed trauma and patterns and all the things that make us addicts, typically, one could have that transcendent experience and emerge from that, maybe sober, but also perhaps the same person with the same glaring character defects and issues, right? Mm. So it's like the not only the integration after an experience, but I think it's really useful, and it has been in my case, um, to also have some degree of understanding of very practical, fundamental spiritual teachings, and also an understanding of basic human psychology, right? Mm. Like you mentioned codependency, understanding codependency, understanding the different degrees and varieties of trauma and the things that we go through earlier in life, having done, you know, therapy or whatever it is that's going to give us kind of an understanding of the inner workings, right? So a, a spiritual framework and understanding and an understanding of human psychology through lived experience and doing some work, add that to a peak experience wherein you're merging with consciousness itself and, yeah. you know, having a conversation with God, right? And, I'm, you know, this isn't like a right or wrong thing or I've done it the right way. I think I was just lucky in the sequence of the way things unfolded for me. And, and I think that has something to do with why my sobriety uh, has never been at risk, despite me, you know, at times being pretty enthusiastic about taking another journey, right? Mm. And if, if I hadn't had that experience prior, and doesn't, I don't say it has to be for 22 years, it just happens to be my story. I don't know that if I would have just walked into an ayahuasca ceremony at six months sober, uh, it right. would have benefited me as much because I was still dishonest. I was still selfish, uh, self-seeking. I was still phony and inauthentic. Mm. I was still deeply insecure, self-conscious. I mean, there were so many things just morally about my character, and this isn't a judgment like to shame my character, but just from well, a moral standpoint, yeah. I was lacking a lot of integrity within myself, right? And maturity. I don't think that even a powerful peak experience is necessarily going to imbue that maturity into an individual. And why I say that is through direct observation of people that are shamans, that serve medicine, people that go to journey after journey after journey, and they still don't have the together. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And this yeah, is, yeah, you know, yeah. again, it's not a judgment of, oh, I'm better, they're wrong. They're not wrong for that. It's an observation, not a judgment. And also just seeing the harm that some people cause that is widely reported. The shaman in South America who's done 150 ayahuasca ceremonies and is abusing people. And then the book, Variety of Religious Experiences, right? Um, that yeah. you mentioned, is that one, um, does it mention uh, religious experiences regarding plant medicines? No, no, no. Okay. And <laughs> to be honest, I've had that book for 
I don't know, 20 plus years. You really read part of it. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. it's so, it's for me, it's a really hard read, but it's a book that's widely known in psychology, psychiatry, in religion. I mean, it's, it's a really meaningful book, but it's very hard to read. But the gist of it is examples of people who have been dramatically changed by having this type of experience. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like called in the context of that book. I mean, it's written, I don't know, in the 20s or 30s or something uh, like a religious conversion. Right. It's like you imagine someone who's a sinner and they go to church and they get blown open and now they're not a sinner. It's that kind of thing. OK. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you can look in any lineage and see examples of this. I mean, if you look into Eastern mysticism, there's people that are asleep and they uh, get the Shakti pot of an enlightened being. And poof, now they're enlightened. I mean, this is this is kind of um, universal, right? So that, yeah, yeah. that book is just kind of the um, Judeo-Christian version of those right. types of stories. Yeah, I think there's probably as many ways as there are people in the world to be enlightened. You know, it can be in your sleep. It can be this. It can be, I mean, as many people as there are in the world, that's how many ways there are to awaken. Yeah, I love the topic of enlightenment because it's like, if you believe yourself to be enlightened, then you aren't, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it's like you would just be you I if you were enlightened, uh, right? No, I don't know. I think that there's like a, yes, yeah, right? It's like, you, you mean aware of yourself? Well, I mean that like the the cunning nature of the ego will glom on to any yeah. qualifier, right? That elevates one uh, one's position. And so it's... It's it's funny to me, and my ego works the same way. I mean, it'll glom onto anything uh, it can get a hold of, too, if I'm not mindful of it. But my perception of enlightenment, as we classically think about it, is that the enlightened one wouldn't even know that they were enlightened. They would just be in a state of presence, in a state of understanding, mm. and um, and uh, I think there's a, an awareness a, awareness that. They're free, right? Yeah, but I think they're aware that that is what people would call enlightenment. Maybe. I think they're aware of, I mean, if you're in the world here, unless you're living in a cave, which you can, I don't think that we're in a place in time where that's needed like it was, as much as um, I think those few sages and yogis, they paved the whole way for humanity to get to a point where we don't have to be in the cave anymore by being in the cave for us. Yeah. Um, giving us little glimpses of what's what what you get, and but people who are here in the world, and they've heard the term enlightenment, just like they've heard the term juice or camera or whatever, they understand. Oh, what I'm experiencing must be that thing they call enlightenment. But I don't think, like you said, there's not the egoic attachment to being an enlightened person. Do you know who Byron Katie is? I do. The four uh, questions are yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. I've- she was the f- second spiritual teacher that I ever mm. sat in uh, in person in, in audience. Yeah, That's when cool. I was in my early twenties. So I've always loved her work, and anytime I've observed her, whether on video or going to her events, she seems free. And mm. I would look at her and say, "That's an enlightened person because she seems to have escaped the mind." You know. And I interviewed her a few years ago and I asked her, I was like, straight up, like, Katie, are you enlightened? And she just laughed. And she's like, oh, Luke, I just don't choose to suffer anymore. You know, I was like, that's Mm. that's it. That's it. Whoa. Yeah, that's it. So 
it's like the idea of even seeing herself with that label was hilarious to her, right? Because, I don't know, maybe she is enlightened, my perception of it, you know? But she just essentially said, yeah, I just, I've just chosen not to suffer anymore, you know? Which, which in her model means that you don't uh, give credence to the intellect. Mm -hmm. that you don't believe what you think that you observe what the mind thinks. She's not trapped by the mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was, that, was, that was fun for me. That was an interesting perspective. You know, I thought, there you go. That's a good sign, you know? I mean, because she wasn't, like, having false modesty. Like, oh, <laughs> everyone knows I am, but I'm just going to, like, play humble. I mean, she was like, what? What even is that, you know? She's like, I'm just not listening to my mind, basically, you know? Mm, but for I those, for those of us that have suffered, you know, I think, well, for me, at least, I can speak... I've always looked at someone like, you know, an Eckhart Tolle or Ram Das or different spiritual teachers. Not so much Ram Das, but Eckhart Tolle would be a great example, right? He's someone who's in deep suffering. He's not a spiritual guy. Goes and sits on a park bench one day and is just like yep. blasted. And now he isn't suffering anymore, right? He's out of uh, illusion. And I, and I used to pray, like, God, if that would just happen to me, man, <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to suffer anymore. I, I don't want to be uh, under the, you know, under the authority of the mind and the ego. It's like, God, I just want to be free, but not everyone. Um, mm, I think you're there, even though you think you're not. Well, because um, I, I'm more thinking. It's just different. It's just different. His I, was a sudden and yours has been gradual. That's it. But the yes. fact that you cry telling a story about oneness is because you have felt it and if you felt it and even if it's a glimpse and not full-on awareness every single day um i think that is there's more credit to it than you're giving yourself well thank you and the fun in it for me is the challenge of Being in meditation, for example, and having those brief glimpses wherein you're in the spaciousness of the quantum realm mm. or just deep awareness, right? Where you've, in that moment, transcended your normal waking thinking state. And it's like, oh, there's so much juice in that. It just feels so good. You're just there. It's empty mm -hmm. and it's full mm -hmm. and it's all the things, right? And then you get up and the phone rings and there's Twitter and the, you know. Yeah. So the fun for me is, can I sit here with you and communicate ideas and, and use the mind for its intended and highest purpose, which is to articulate my thoughts and feelings to share with you and people listening. But can I do so with that same degree of presence that I do when I'm meditating, mm. right? Can, can my life become a meditation to where it's not relegated to a certain time and place? And the same could be said of prayer when I'm in a very devotional place and I'm experiencing the presence of God and communicating with God. Can I interact with you and anyone listening or watching in the same way? Can it be a prayer, <laughs> a prayer to God here by just simply being fully present with you? and praying to you and with you and for you and myself. Why does it have to be time at my altar or time set away from that? What if walking is a prayer? What if I can just hold a field of love for 
reality itself and everything that reality contains. Yeah, what if you are the altar? Yeah. Yeah, life, life is an altar. You mm. know? That's what keeps it fun for me because I'm never doing that perfectly, right? Oh, I get a text, oh shit, the bank or whatever. It's like, whoosh, there I go. Yeah. Right? A difficult phone call, a, a business conflict, a relationship conflict, that, that really <laughs> scary letter to write. You know, can I be in meditation in that process? Can I be in prayer in that process? I'm going to lose it. I'm going to drift. There I go. Float it off. Just like a balloon. You let go mm -hmm. of the string. Oh, shit. Grab the balloon. Come back. Be here. Be with all of this. You know, that's what keeps, keeps it fun, keeps it interesting, and also, hopefully, uh, keeps, me, keeps me humble. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like so much progress has been made. A lot of that is because of my spiritual will and the intention and the discipline that it has taken and continues to take to be on this path. But most of it's just from grace. You know, so can I be aware of the grace and my own commitment and honor myself for what I've put into the game and also the cheat codes that I've been given through, through grace and remain present and in deep reverence and gratitude of all of that and just honor. Man, I don't know if I did it or God did it, but hmm. something collaboratively perhaps is doing it. Let's keep doing it. And how excited are you for life? Like, just as you talk right now, I can feel that. Like, how much do you just love being here, being alive? Most of the time, quite a bit. Yeah, there's things about being alive that are challenging. But in the overall context of it, yeah, I want to be here for as long as I can because so much progress has been made and there's so much more progress to make. You know, if the percentage of time I'm here is held with a certain degree of presence, and awareness, and that's increasing, what would it feel like and be like if there was even more of that? You know, if I was in love with life even more, if I, if I loved more deeply, if I saw myself as even more connected to those around me, you know, how many times a day do I still look at someone and I don't see their soul as my soul in their eyes, they're just there. Mm -hmm. And how sweet life becomes when I really am there, like I'm there with you right now. That makes it interesting. And that makes me love my life because there's, there's always something to, there's always more to go for, you know? But yeah, there's things about my life that annoy the shit out of me at the same time, you know? That it's like, God, why me? There's things that happen and I have to really resist having a victim perspective and or feeling hopeless or scared and, you know, like my ear ringing. I have this tinnitus thing going on and sometimes that really scares me because it's so distracting when I'm trying to do what I just described and just be present and enjoy silence. How often is that showing up? It's showing up anytime I'm not sleeping. Mm. Yeah. and uh, Constant. Yeah. But as I was saying earlier, if, if I don't find a gift in that, and if I don't find a lesson in that, then it really becomes a hindrance. And then I'm really a victim. Mm -hmm. God, I'm mm -hmm. a good person. I'm doing all this work. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know very many people that do as much as I do to be healthy, right? I mean, it's like, I'm into it. I'm big health nut, right? 
It's like, God, if I'm trying this hard and I still have something this annoying, this isn't fair, you know, but if I can use it as an opportunity to find the lesson in it, then I won't say that it's fun, but it bothers me much less. Yeah. And it also gives me hope that maybe there's something on the other side of it, or if there's not another side of it, that it'll just be something that I just learned to live with and no longer see as being wrong or think that it shouldn't be this way. It should be another way. What if this is just how the world sounds to me now? Mm. What if it sounds like this forever for me? Okay. What, what do we do with that? You know, what is it that I'm not listening to? What is it that I'm not hearing from my body? You know, where am I still asleep? Maybe it gives me even more compassion for people that have something like this that's nagging them and they mm. can't seem to fix it or find a peace with it. And we might not know, right? Like if I just saw you at the store and was talking to you, I might not know what you're going through. Yeah, I'm not wearing a cast. Never you know, know. Hey, sorry about your arm. What happened to a skiing accident? Right. You know, it's like only I know when I sit here and even hearing myself talk, it's like, wow. <laughs> it just goes on and on, you know? So, yeah, what a, what a gift to be able to um, learn how to feel sorry for myself less. Or to feel victimized or special mm -hmm. or that I don't deserve this or anything. Or it's that. not fair. Yeah, or that it... That's a broadcast I clear from a lot of people. It's not fair. Yeah, yeah. But I think life, life is fair because the lessons that life gives us, if we choose to perceive and hold them in that way, are more than fair. They're the best ever. <laughs> Might be in the end your biggest lesson, your greatest Yeah, gift. I mean, if I look back on any difficulty that mm. I've gone through, if I've taken my lumps and, and used that for my own growth and understanding, I wouldn't take any of it back. And I've been through some really gnarly stuff in my life, you know, like many of us have. I wouldn't go back again and not be a drug addict or not have um, endured the trauma that I endured as a boy. I mean... It's not fun, mm. but I don't know that I would have it any different because had it been different, I would be different. And I like the way I am <laughs> more and more, you mm. know, learning to just go, hmm, wow, I'm cool. I'm okay, you know, this is pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. So far, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, imagine had you not had the life you have had. Good, bad, ugly. Oh, no. You'd be a different person. Yeah. Maybe you'd be another great person that you also enjoy, but you would be different. And so. Even one thing, you know, people say, if you could take back one thing in life, it's like what they don't understand, you take back that one thing and everything changes. I got a good one on that. Hmm. All right. I used to always, because I don't regret being an addict, I don't regret any of the painful experiences that I endured at the hands of perpetrators or that I, you know, did to myself. But I always said, the one thing I regret is not taking care of my teeth. Mm. So I was a drug addict. I mean, I was opening beer bottles with my teeth. I became a vegetarian <laughs> for 10 years. All my teeth rotted out because I was malnourished, etc. Went to the dentist. They said, you're grinding your teeth. You need to wear a night guard. I was like, I'm not going to give you $700 to put a piece of plastic in my mouth. Just trash my teeth. And, and it really bothered me up until a couple months ago, mm. it was just like, ah, oh, God, I just, ha I regretted that, you know, because you can't grow new teeth yet, hopefully someday. <laughs> yeah. And then this is just a, a great example of this. Like, we don't know what we don't know because we're not on the other side of the arc of linear time yet. You know, time is this infinite, right. infinite expanse that has no beginning and no end. And we have this myopic view of this one 
punctuation point we call today's date and time, right? There actually is no such thing as time. We just manufacture this. No, so we created we can... it so that we can be like, hey, look, meet yeah. me at 1 p.m. for this interview. Yeah. yeah. So I couldn't see on the other side of it. To me, ah, it's a real bummer, man. I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on my teeth over the years. Every dentist I go to is just like, hey, you're out of luck. There's nothing we can do for you kind of thing. And I'm just like, oh, man, what happens when I get older? Am I going to have dentures? Like, what is up? So anyway, long story short, I finally hit this impasse with my teeth and I'm like, I have to do something. I go to a dentist here. Um, what's her name over in our neighborhood? Ah, God, she's a really sweet lady. Anyway, she runs all these scans on me because I had a feeling missing. Uh, and I was like, would you just fix my feeling with my old busted ass yellow, you know, trashed teeth? Years of grinding, my back teeth don't touch. I can't really eat food well. I like to eat smoothies and soup just so I don't have to chew it. I mean, I'm in bad mm, shape. And she's mm -hmm. like, Luke, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to give you a filling. She goes, your bite is in the wrong place. Do you have neck pain? I was like, yeah. She goes, do you have back pain? I said, yeah, for years. I can't fix it. And she's like, your overbite is not normal. And the reason you've been grinding your teeth down to yellow nubs all of these years is because when you sleep, your airway closes because your jaw mm. is not in the right place. She must be functional dentist, right? Or yeah. No? yeah. Uh, biological dentist. Biological, yeah. yeah. Merrily, first name's Merrily. It might come to me. So she says, the reason you're grinding your teeth is when you clench your jaw, it opens your airways. And so your body's trying to get more oxygen at night. Mm. And that's why you've ground your teeth down. So my type of dentistry, as brilliant as she is, and my other dentist, Dr. Nunnally and Dr. Owens out in uh, Marble Falls, they're great biological dentists for people that have working teeth. Um, she said, you need to go see a specialist. You need to fix your bite. Lucky and unlucky for you. You don't have any tooth matter left to fix. So I'm going to recommend that you go to someone who rebuilds your bite and your jaw and gives you all new teeth, crowns, veneers, and that's called a whole mouth restoration. It's like if people that get in an accident, right? A car accident, all your teeth. Yeah, yeah. Out. Like you just get all new fake teeth. Like it was that, teeth. it was that extensive? Yeah, but going back to, we don't know, we don't know. So I go see this dentist here, Dr. Winters, here in, here in Austin. Shout out to Dr. Winters, brilliant guy. He's been the doing- lady is Sanford. Yes, Marilee Sanford. Thank you, mm -hmm. thank you, honey. She's great also. But admittedly, she was honest, you know, and had the integrity to be like, I can't help you with what you have going on. You need to see this type of dentist. Yeah. So yeah. I go see this Dr. Winters. They do all these very sophisticated computer model scans on me, the CT scan, the whole thing. And he's like, brother, your lower jaw is not in the right place in order for you to be functional and healthy. And this is causing all these problems with your ears, your skull, your neck, the whole chain of your system of bones and joints is jacked up because your jaw is mm. impinging all of these nerves mm -hmm. behind your ears and in your cranium and you're screwed whether you do this with me or not i'm just telling you the reality of what it is so i was i really liked him the information he shared i didn't like the price tag on the project but uh, yeah that's got to be expensive i felt my intuition was like oh my god this is the thing this is what i've needed and so i elected to go through his whole procedure which is um something my friend kyle kingsbury did i was asking around for recommendations and kyle had a similar thing going and he got this done he's like it's amazing so you know that regret that i had now is replaced by this is awesome because once I buy all these, these aren't the new teeth, by the way, these are like plastic uh, orthotics that move your jaw. And then once your jaw's moved and all your ligaments, tendons, muscles are all used to the new placement. And your How device, long does that take, by the way? Four to six weeks of the fake plastic. 
buck teeth. And then you go in and they take this off. It's just like yeah. a big piece of plastic, literally. And then they put all the crowns and veneers on. And then you can choose like the shade so they yeah, don't look yeah. too white and weird. And I want them just to be natural. But the thing that's really awesome is I feel so much better overall in, right? in my body. Yeah. Like the level of comfort I have in my skin is dramatically different than it was prior to doing this. So the regret I had of not taking care of my teeth, I was young and stupid. I didn't listen. I became a vegetarian. You know, all the things I did that trashed my teeth. I'd had indigestion. If you have indigestion a lot because I was a vegetarian and all I ate was grains. So I always had like uh, heartburn and then you're, you breathe acidic breath onto your teeth while you sleep and that rots, the, uh, kills the enamel. It's a whole thing. So now I'm sitting here going, thank God I didn't take care of my teeth because once homeboy fixes my teeth, I have a lifetime guarantee on my new porcelain teeth. And guess what? No more cavities, no more problems. Like those are your teeth until you're dead. Basically. What does lifetime guarantee mean? He'll replace them anytime? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's that means great. like you have new, stronger, better, healthier, prettier teeth for the rest of your life. And you might've never checked your airway, your well, neck. Well, that's your, the thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. So it's like the blessing is, holy shit. If I would have just went and kind of patched them together and got, right. you know, just kind of hobbled along on my worn out 52 year old teeth um i would have missed the opportunity to have the systemic health benefits that i'm already experiencing even at the beginning stages of this whole mouth restoration and that's just you know one of so many different examples of not seeing the other side of something that that i perceive to be you know a challenge or bad luck or just like god what you know regret mistakes mm -hmm. it's like this is the best thing ever. Only because my perspective shifted. That's the only difference of me before seeing this dentist and me after. Literally everything is exactly the same except my perspective and my attitude toward it. And it's a great lesson for me how many areas in my life or situations in which I'm viewing them from the perspective of should, shouldn't, right, wrong. I don't know. You know, I don't know because I'm stuck in this point in time and I can't see what's on the yeah, other side of yeah. this. And I can zoom out to the way the world is now with the tyranny and just craziness that we're experiencing. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe five years, 10 years, 40 years, 100 years from now, we're going to be going, oh my God, remember that three years starting in 2020? Best thing ever. Independent media took, out, mm -hmm. uh, took over, the message gone out, and now people are building a new system of civilization because the old one was so broken and we're still living in the broken one now and it seems scary but if i look at my own life and all these little situations like the one i just shared i don't know maybe it's the best thing ever hmm. there's no such thing as good or bad only thinking makes it so shakespeare yeah yeah so what am i thinking about and how am i thinking about it that's the game that's it perspective Wow. I mean, I can, I can go on for hours, but uh, let's end it there. Needless to say, so can I. <laughs> so can you. I know you can. I mean, you get me talking but about gold. Thing, things about which I have passion and conviction. Well, I didn't want it to be, it. you know, three, Luke's story, three, three, way, three hacks for sleep. Or like, no, I want to know who you are, what Thank you believe, you. what's in there. And I know that there's a lot to share with others. And so I, I, I didn't want to waste that opportunity, you know, because I think that I'll listen to your show or just talk to you sometimes. And there's this little nugget of like, ooh, yeah. And thanks for holding the space.
I mean, if the things we go through don't carry enough value to share, then why go through them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And not everyone made it to the end of this interview. Some people are like, well, I don't get it, not interested, and they tune out. But if somebody stayed, it's because something in them identified with some of my experience and the things that I've learned from those experiences. You know, there's nothing cooler than making it out of the burning building and going, hey, here's a map so if, if you want it. If this is your style of map and you can relate to it or modify it to find your way out of your building, but we're all in a building of some kind yeah. and it's on fire. It's just a matter of how much mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or when. I know there's probably a Luke storybook coming eventually. There is one right now. Is there now? Do you have a title yet? Um, not <laughs> I do, yeah, but yeah. not that I want to share quite not yet. That you want to share. I don't know why I'm coveting the title. No, I like that. Allison, <laughs> Allison knows it. Yeah, but I, I am. Yeah. I'm sure you'll tell me off camera. <laughs> All of the stuff that we've been sharing here today is is going in a big fat book at, as we speak. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Thanks. Absolutely. Man. That's fun. Yeah, I can really see that. Um, so speaking of books, when yours comes out, obviously we'll give that away. But uh, yes. we're going to do a little book giveaway. Um, is there a book that you recommend to people that we can that we can give to the audience? I'll give to the audience, obviously. But anyone that you have in mind? Yeah, David R. Hawkins, Letting Go. Yes! Yesterday, Philip from Leela Quantum recommended Power Versus Force. Yeah. And uh, then at dinner, we were talking about, um, me and someone who works for him, we're talking about how uh, Letting Power Versus Force was our favorite David Hawkins book until we read Letting Go, and now that's our favorite yeah. David Hawkins book. Yeah. So, it's, perfect. It's a, it's a beautiful, I mean, he has so many great books, but... Power versus Force kind of like a good intro. It's a little yeah. bit dry to me. It's the first one I read. And then he has these just massive books on non-duality that like literally one of his books. The took Eye. Me, or yeah, or, The yeah. Eye of yeah. the Eye, Reality yeah. versus Subjectivity. Yeah. I mean, it's deep yes. stuff. It took me three, five years to read one of his books. I mean, literally, I could just read a paragraph at a time and I'm just, it's too much, you know? But Let It Go, on the other hand, uh, it's my intuitive thought that he was in his mid-80s, probably had some sense of leaving his body soon. And he wrote Letting Go, which is his last book. I think it's called Letting Go, The Power of Surrender. It's essentially the whole book's about surrender. But the way it's written is so simpleton that there's no way he didn't know, I'm going to break the mold of my normal way of speaking and writing. I'm going to write a book that's very approachable but still has the potency. And what I like about that book is that it's so easy to understand and easy to read. And that really the primary focus of the book is him laying out the most impactful, basic, fundamental spiritual principles mm. and how to apply them in your life. The primary one being the process of surrender. And so it's like everything great about the 12 steps and non-duality put into a very applicable reader friendly text mm -hmm. you know that's just heartfelt simple but it's also super potent i love that book i've read it a bunch of times i've listened to it a zillion times i'm gonna listen to it now it's, it's so, a good reminder it's to go so back. good yeah. it's so good the, and the essence of it is just it's like what I was talking about with that letter. You have these things we, we don't want to feel and we we just sometimes destroy our lives through the means of escape that we've habituated. And the way around it is through it. 
you know, and that's what that book is about, is like feeling your life completely. And that if you're experiencing limitation mm. and what you would uh, label as negative emotions, that literally the fast way out of suffering is by going into the suffering. I think he describes his own suffering in that yeah, book, if I remember. Yeah. It's like his own agony. Totally. Yeah, yeah. 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 He was a fascinating guy. I went mm. to see him speak a couple of times in Sedona. And he's my all-time wow. favorite spiritual teacher. I mean, beyond. Wow. Because he's one... Sorry, I know we're at the end here, but I just... I no, get take your time. so pumped about this guy. But yeah. so far, he's the only spiritual teacher that I haven't just gone through a season with and like benefited mm. and then kind of moved on right there was like the Eckhart Tolle years when the power of now came out I was like whoa you're not your mind what and it was you know I gained so much from his teachings I went to see him speak I mean I was like a Tolle devotee and now when I go back to that it's like well yeah I mean I just get it now right not to say that you know no, but you live it now yeah yeah it's not as revelatory and I don't go back to it and be like oh oh, shit, I missed this before, right? It doesn't continue to unfold deeper and deeper layers of understanding. With Hawkins' work, I mean, mm. I'll take some time off from reading his stuff or listening to his lectures, and I'm like, I'm thinking I'm, I I kind of get it, you know? And a few months later, I go back and listen to it, and I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, I wasn't even yeah. scratching the surface of the depth that he had excavated in the time of his, of his life. A really incredible, incredible teacher, just profound man life-changing stuff yeah i'm so grateful you recommended that one i can't wait to give that to people because um yeah. i've been wanting it's now like you're like the third person to bring it up in the last few days i've read it but years ago yeah and it's on my nightstand and i haven't touched it in years yeah so i'm gonna go back and read it too yeah it's a great gift for your for your people yeah. and also i just recommend in closing and i swear this is the last thing i'll say i you know over the years i don't know if it's social media just aed what it is but i'm not a great reader anymore mm. and I think that's partly because I've listened to so much audio for so many years. I kind of just want to get to it and, and just take it in. Maybe I'm just a more auditory learner. That might be part of it. But David Hawkins' um, audiobooks and lectures, you know, you can get them on the Lectures Audible. are on YouTube, too. Yeah. I mean, dude, I've listened to... In fact, to... his um, Letting Go is on YouTube for free. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. With so, his, I like to read. But yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll listen to it. Lectures, is it his voice? Yeah, uh, Letting Go is not because okay. they recorded it after he died. But uh, he has, you know, Nightingale, Conant lectures and stuff that he was doing back when they were like on CD and cassette tapes probably before that. But mm. I've found from listening to him over and over and over again, I've derived maybe even more benefit than from reading because there's a certain energy transmission that's present uh, on recordings that is felt and experienced in a different way than reading words mm -hmm. and ink on paper so i go back and listen to his stuff all the time and i'm just like whoa oh my god i feel wow. i mean i listen to some of his his deeper lectures where he just goes into the eye of the needle and i'm like i got a long way to go mm. you know his level of understanding he was a psychiatrist for 50 years and also had multiple enlightenment experiences throughout his life so i mean he's just a deeply fascinating person and has such a grounded perspective bringing in Eastern mysticism and psychology, right? And kind of yeah. creating a model around that. And he was storm. also a recovering alcoholic. Was he? Who was friends with the co-founder, Bill Wilson, that I was speaking about earlier. That's how I found David Hawkins. If you, wow. if you really dig into the history of AA, David Hawkins becomes part of the conversation. And that's how I found his work. Oh, what a he world. Also, he also explains in a lot of his work 
how and why the teachings of the 12 steps are so transformative because it had that effect on him. So he started researching, well, where does this come from and why does it do what it does? And essentially the reason that it works, and he of course expounds on this with much greater detail, is that applying those principles to one's life raises your consciousness. And when your consciousness is raised, you don't need to drink. Well, it doesn't resonate anymore. A lower <laughs> yeah. consciousness can't. It can't exactly. resonate. That's yeah. why sometimes they say people who like work with Aya, they're like, "Well, it's a higher frequency than alcohol, so it doesn't. You just can't." Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, you won't drop to that vibration. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Wow. Yeah. yeah thank you for this. Thank who you. would have thought Huxley, Wilson, and Hawkins are all connected? Crazy. Very interesting. It's yeah. wild. So we'll give yeah. one book. So if you're listening, if you're listening on YouTube, um, just leave a comment that is letting go in the comments and you will be entered to win uh, the book. I'll reach out. You'll send me your address or someone will reach out. Or if you're listening, let's say you're not on YouTube, which by the way, if I was listening, I would do both because <laughs> I'd want to win. Um, you can go on YouTube and then also on the podcast app, give it a five-star rating and screen grab it. You can DM it to me, put it in a story, post it however you want. Just make sure I see it and I'll choose one person and send you letting go. Cool? Score. All right. Thank you, Luke, so much. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. Yep. Ah, thank you. Thanks, man.